The Business of Culture, the culture of business, policy, media and technology, entrepreneurs, authors, creatives, and so much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The idea that you could insure against acts of God, for lack of a better word, was, you know, not something that people thought was possible. Whereas, you know, today we insure against hurricanes, we insure against floods, we we insure against all kinds of things that we used to think we couldn't insure against. COVID-19 has been a mass extinction event for all manner of commerce. Restaurants, concert halls, wedding bands, office landlords, so many more were blindsided to learn that their business interruption insurance did not cover a pandemic. It was Washington that stepped up with unprecedented emergency financial aid just to keep the economy functioning. Which begs the question, what will insurance look like coming out of COVID-19? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter and Facebook at FullDRadio. Joining me is John Pendleton. He's a risk advisor with employee-owned Scott Insurance. It's been serving companies across the U.S. and internationally. The first policy that Scott Insurance wrote was over 150 years ago for fire insurance uh, during the Civil War, which tragically came in very handy here in Richmond, which saw a big chunk of the, the city burnt down. But I digress. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, man. Good to uh, Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. No, thank you. Use your illusion and think back to one of these pre-pandemic breakfasts we had at the Westwood Diner, <laughs> where you and I, like not knowing what was around the corner, we we were chewing the fat, and I just mix metaphors, about insurance risk and small and medium businesses and the like. And I first thought of you when March of 2020 hit. What kinds of calls are you getting from clients, uh, restaurants, let's say bars, concert venues and the like that suddenly realized that their business was shut off in a matter of hours and they probably had no recourse. Yeah. As everybody remembers, I mean, it was a scary time. I mean, mm. our clients were calling us, particularly our retail and hospitality clients were were really scared. I mean, everyone was understandably panicked as it related to the, uh, you know, just the pandemic itself, but the business interruption issue in particular was extremely concerning. You know, and we'll talk a little bit deeper around that, but people were scared, you know. How many messages did you get? I mean, I guess for a lot of people, it was when the CDC or uh, I, I don't I don't know who it was with the Trump White House. There were varying messages that you were getting from the Federal Reserve, the bond markets. I remember when the NBA decided to postpone the season, when schools decided to go remote. I turned to my wife and said, this is this is real. I mean, what officialized it for you? You know, I remember, and I wish I could remember the exact date, but there was a weekend that the energy, you could almost feel it. It, it felt a little bit like after 9-11, there was just something in the air and, and anxiety and a, and a panic. And it seemed to happen over the weekend. Uh, and when, of course, the shutdown happened, it, it got really scary. Um, but it was, I think, in late March when this shift happened. And I just remember thinking, oh, my God, you know, this, this is really bad. What kinds of calls were you getting? Um, I've, we got a lot of calls from mostly our clients in the retail world and in the hospitality world who were panicked. I mean, they understandably were worried about the disruption to their operations and said, listen, you know, I've been paying premium for years. Uh, hopefully this business interruption coverage will come into play here. So you can imagine uh, those conversations when we walked through how the coverage structure inhibits coverage the majority of the time. Specifically, after SARS in 2006, insurance companies started to introduce a virus exclusion in almost all property policies. And so they had been for years excluding coverage for any virus or contamination-related event like that. So that's hurdle number one, but really the main hurdle to coverage here was the physical damage nature of the coverage trigger. So what that means specifically is coverage is triggered 
by direct physical loss or physical damage to your property. So the question is, does a virus, you know, meet that coverage trigger? And as we've all found out, it really does not. And so that was a tough message to deliver during a very stressful time. But at the end of the day, you know, I think the government stepping in with PPP and CARES is the right thing to do and, and fill that void for a lot of people. If you were in the construction world, if you remember, you know, the shutdown here in Virginia had some language as it relates to folks that are quote unquote essential. And we had a lot of construction clients that were able to continue working. They did not have foot traffic. You know, that's not how they make revenue or bring revenue in the door. So let me understand this. Suppose I'm opening up a restaurant slash concert venue, all right? That performers come in, you buy the, you know, the two drink minimum. I don't know if it's a, a Cinebistro type place or a comedy place. And I, in the year 2015, want to buy business interruption insurance writ large. What is kind of the median thing that I'm seeking out an insurance broker for? What are the things that I need to buy to cover myself as a business startup in one that's very kind of retail and event and person-to-person hospitality facing? Sure. Um, so from a business interruption perspective, that covers and subsidizes lost net income, some expenses, covers payroll while your operations are suspended, and then can also be dovetailed with a coverage called extra expense, will, which will then subsidize any additional expenses you incur as a result of that loss. So that's going to be baked into most property policies. Interestingly enough, after looking into this a lot over the last couple of years, there's really only about a 30% uptake of the business interruption coverage, meaning it was out there. Almost all of our clients have it, particularly if the main source of revenue is people coming to your site. I do have some clients, again, in the construction world where right. the revenue generators are really out of job sites, so they can operate without it. But if you're a concert venue, you're a comedy club, that sort of thing, restaurant, you know, pre-pandemic, you would absolutely want and need business income coverage. Now, against what kind of bread and butter risk? What, a sewer line break? I mean, weather is its own thing, correct? I mean, right. what, what is this, outside of pandemic, what did the fine print cover? Yeah, so covered perils of a different kind. So think uh, fires, uh, that's probably the easiest example. I did have one client, unfortunately, have a tornado hit one of their buildings, and so that's covered. Physical property loss um, incurred in a situation like that is traditionally what business income would be used to cover. Now, to illustrate for everybody, there's, you know, outside of SARS-2, if I remember, I was going to business school in 2003, and in that uh, summer, some people from Hong Kong and from China had to delay matriculation because this was an epidemic, at least, and everybody thought that it was going to, you know, jump the Atlantic and the Pacific and come to the United States. It didn't, and you mentioned that a lot of the carriers changed their policies after that. But for the most part, we haven't had a collective memory about pandemic and disrupting the economy since before 1920. And that was a very different economy back then. It was a very different uh, Federal Reserve. It was a very different regulatory regime. So did this much come up in conversation with you and your clients before 2020? No, this wasn't this wasn't a conversation topic, really. I mean, even with SARS, I think people and, and Zika and, and some of these other Ebola, you know, they are really scary. But I think there was a general perception of, oh, that's, you know, it won't be a big deal. And um, it is a big deal, right? But in, in this case, it did jump the Atlantic, to use your, your words there. And so it really caused a systemic problem um, in a way that just, to your point, hasn't happened uh, since the twenty, you know, nineteen eighteen or, or the twenties, really. Uh, you know, I want to read back from some interesting headline that I'm sure you saw within weeks of the pandemic breaking. I'm talking early April of 2020. There was this headline in USA Today: Wimbledon to receive 141 million in pandemic insurance payout for each of the past 17 years. The article wrote. The All England Lawn Tennis Club has paid for an insurance policy to guard against losses if Wimbledon should have to be canceled in the event of a worldwide pandemic. That preparation will finally pay off this year. Uh, the insurance will result in a payment worth $141 million, or nearly half the amount that the club expects to lose as a result of the cancellation. Uh, it just 
underscores for me how prohibitively expensive this stuff is. I did think about the metaphor of a broken clock being right twice a day. You know, you could pay into this stuff forever, and it's kind of cold comfort vindication that after 17 years, you finally got a check to cover half of your losses. Uh, it's a it's a very tough value proposition to sell to small and medium sized businesses that are margin dependent. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you know you can always find yourself in a situation where you look back and you say, "Gosh, you know we didn't really need it," and then something kicks in and you do. And uh, you know my memory of the Wimbledon story is I believe that was more of an event policy rather than the traditional property policy. But they, my memory is they engaged that after SARS. Uh, and so, yeah, they're one of the few folks out there that had engaged that coverage for their events. Now, I believe that was written through a specialty policy through Lloyd's of London. Um, and ultimately, it, it came to their rescue in a, in a big way that you know, was an outlier for where everyone else would be. And if I'm a medium-sized business, small business, no, I likely would not be trying to approach, you know, a carrier to put together a specialty policy because the big issue is how do you underwrite it? You know, that's the big challenge is if I'm a carrier, am I going to be able to adequately underwrite the risk? And probably not. And therefore, I'm going to charge a significant premium to deal with that complexity. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to John Pendleton. He's a risk advisor with Scott Insurance. Uh, for more than 150 years, it's been serving companies across the U.S. and internationally. <laughs> Thinking back to the first insurance policy for fire insurance during the Civil War, how much the, the world has changed. Maybe we don't talk about the flammability of cities as much now as we do uh, you know, climate risk and sea level rise and certainly pandemic risk. Illustrate for us, you were just talking about this, who are the ones out there underwriting these kind of esoteric insurance policies? Were there some multinational players like, I don't know, Lloyd's of London or Marsh and Mac that, that were going to, to gigantic companies and saying that, look, it behooves you to lose some upside every year on this in the event that you have to cancel one of your massive cash flow events one of these years? You know, in the majority of the time, no. I mean, there was a little bit of that. I mean, that's where Wimbledon found some coverage to a specialty program. So there, there are a couple specialty things like that. Again, that tends to be more around the event-based policies. But it really just wasn't there. And I think you know, in the future, will there be carriers that come to the table for this? You will likely see some carriers try and put something together. The challenge is just going to be, again, how do you underwrite it? One of the big functions of insurance is spread of risk. So the idea that, okay, we're going to underwrite this risk and we're going to insure all of these different companies and our losses over here are going to subsidize, be subsidized by our gains over here. But hard to spread the risk when something's happening everywhere. You know, um, easier if there's a fire loss in Kansas, there's not going to be fire losses, you know, in North Dakota. So you are winning if you're the carrier. I don't see long term how carriers are going to be able to price this in mass. And they certainly, unfortunately, if they start coming to the table with this without the government being involved, which is something we can talk about, I think they're likely going to exclude COVID-19 moving forward. But here's the deal. The rub is the government did get involved this time in the absence of some other call option or put option or whatever you want to use to describe it in the spring of 2020. The government, the, the Congress stepped forth with PPP and CARES. And I, I wouldn't say nationalized the risk, but taxpayers backstopped a lot of people. If you could keep those payrolls going, by and large, that, that debt to you was forgiven. So in the end, the government kind of did step in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, like terrorism and nuclear exposure, there are an earthquake, there are programs that exist today that are public private partnerships between carriers and the government. And I think likely what's going to happen moving forward is a version of that for pandemics. So after 9-11 happened, for example, most coverage forms were what's called silent on terrorism. So if they're silent, meaning they don't specifically exclude it, you could infer it's covered. But then it turned into a giant back and forth 
after 9-11 occurred between carriers uh, trying to deny claims. It was just a big mess. So after that, they formed a program developed by the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act that creates a hybrid model where carriers will offer coverage for that, but ultimately it's subsidized by the government. And the benefit of doing that is it drives pricing down. And then also because carriers are involved as opposed to directly going through the government, carriers have the ability to underwrite it properly and then most importantly, distribute the payments with claims to their pre-existing claims adjustment programs. What's the conversation like right now with clients, both past, you know, present, prospective? Because I get the sense that you've been once bitten. Many have had near-death experiences. Many have gone out of business. That you do want to insure against something like this in the future, not in a way that it's absolutely prohibitive and it sinks your business. But uh, well, look, it's not fire, or you could take a wand and count the spores in the air. It can shut down your livelihood overnight. Yeah, I think part of the conversation will be, I think it's to be continued is probably the best answer. And so what I mean by that is Zurich Insurance has come together with a potential proposal with the government that's basically structured similar to the federal crop insurance program. And then Chubb has put together a program that is slightly different, but functionally the same in the sense that there's a public-private nature to this. Chubb breaks theirs down by essentially automatic coverage for companies under 500 employees. And then you have the option to opt out if you don't want to have the coverage and pay for it. And then if you're 500 employees or higher, it's more of the traditional, you can voluntarily ask for the coverage. I think that's what's most likely going to occur. There's actually some legislation in Congress right now called the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act 2021 that I think will likely be followed up on and implemented in some way. And every country around the world is developing some version of that public-private partnership. And so I think if you're on the smaller end, I think there will likely be coverage available like this terrorism risk insurance plan, and we call it TRIA for short, where you're going to have coverage baked in on certain lines of, of uh, coverage automatically. You can accept or reject coverage if you'd like, depending on other lines of coverage. So I think there will be a solution there. I would be remiss to say that's going to happen overnight, but I think long-term, there's just going to have to be. PPP and CARES were great, but the reality is that was a Band-Aid kind of reaction in the moment, and it worked out really well, candidly. In many cases, you know, I have had clients that we're obviously thankful for it, and, and it's worked out well. All their loans have been forgiven. But I think a more permanent long-term solution is going to be something like that Chubb proposal. And what does that pay, theoretically? I mean, suppose that Chubb proposal or, you know, there, there are a couple out there that are floating these public-private uh, liability ideas. What would that pay? Like if a restaurant would say, I want to be reimbursed at, what, 90% of my peak operating performance? I mean, how do you even come to that number. This is what I never understood. Yeah. Yeah. So there are insurance policies out there that are called parametric. And what that means is instead of getting into the back and forth of interpreting coverage, is this covered? Like in a business income situation, normally what you have to do is take your expenses mm. a year before, compare it to the current year and basically justify, yes, we've suffered a business interruption. And oh, by the way, this is exactly how much it cost. Parametric policies basically say, hey, if these four conditions are met, then we're just going to make a payout and it's going to automatically be X amount. And so in the Chubb proposal, for example, it's a multiple of monthly payroll expenses. So there would be no need for the insured and the insurer to go back and forth and say and try and prove the loss. It's just, hey, you know what? A public health emergency was declared. That meets the parametric hurdle, and we're just going to pay you, you know, $100,000, whatever the figure is. John, why the asymmetry with health insurance? I guess if you, uh, you know, showed up gasping for air at an emergency room and they found that you were, you know, you had to be intubated and you were on a ventilator because of COVID, you wouldn't be denied because this pandemic is what got you deathly ill, resulting in tens of thousands of, you know, hospital and trauma care expenses. Why? 
why does one get judged okay versus the other not when, you know, small business interruption versus healthcare? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, candidly, I would tell you the only answer that comes to mind quickly is there's a number of studies that have come out to say, hey, look, what would happen if the government came in and just forced carriers to pay all these claims? And basically, again, there's a bunch of these studies, but one of them I saw recently said that it would cost carriers $431 billion per month to pay the claims for companies with less than 100 employees only. And so that exceeds the amount of premiums that come in the door each month mm. um, for all P&C by a factor of 100. Property so, and casualty insurance. Correct. And so I think ultimately that's the biggest hurdle. Uh, just off the top of my head, I would say that carriers have been saying for a long time now, look, we just don't have the capital to cover all these losses. And I think there's there is a legitimate point there. And I think the secondary and tertiary consequences of insolvencies with carriers is going to cause a just a tremendous issue in itself. So there are other lines, if you can illustrate for our listeners, that are substantially or exclusively underwritten by the government. I'm thinking about uh, flood insurance or if you want to buy beachfront property in South Florida, stuff that's becoming dicier to underwrite. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. So flood insurance is a really good example. There are actually um, carriers that will give you flood insurance, um, but in situations where I've got a client going through this right now where they're coastal, so meaning they are very close to the coast, they're, ex they're exposed to wind, storms, uh, and no carrier is going to write that. So the government has a program put together called the NFIP for those situations. And I, so I think similarly, that's where this makes sense. I think carriers don't have the capital, even if they decided to dip into this without government support, I don't think they would. But even if they did, I think the premiums would be cost prohibitive. I don't think anyone would end up buying it uh, just because the premiums would have to be exorbitant to cover the unknown risk. What I don't understand is why, at what point it can't become statutory. You mentioned regulation coming down the pike at some point. If the government realizes, like, for example, with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that it was on the hook, ultimately, and you're getting the risk again of private gains and, and socialized risk if another pandemic blows again and you have to have a repeat of PPP or CARES. I haven't seen the final accounting of what the price tag for that was. But if it's not being borne by the underwriters, then transitively, it's being borne by the taxpayer. Yeah, I think it will. Again, I think what will likely happen is the government's going to get involved and they're just going to have to structure something for this. I, I just think that that's where this is going to land. I think they still have to work through, you know, th this legislation last I checked has not progressed uh, far enough where they have a formal solution lined out. But I think that's the most likely outcome to answer your question. In closing, John Pendleton, in the few minutes we have left with you, uh, what kind of questions am I not asking you? Again, sometimes I just like to wonk out, and my editor has to warn me, don't, you know, don't go too deep into the weeds. But I do this for the sake of explanation and understanding, and I don't want to bore people. But sometimes you know, if I'm fascinated by something and I can talk your head off about it, what are the questions that small and medium businesses or individual uh, insurance customers should be asking right now, the things that maybe should keep them up at night? Yeah, I mean, I think in the context of the pandemic, I think, um, you know, we always tell clients, you obviously can certainly buy insurance, but isn't it better to invest a little proactively in certain risk control procedures that maybe you can minimize the need to bring insurance into the equation? So in the context of the pandemic, you know, what we've seen clients do is, okay, you know, we talked about going remote or having remote capability where possible for years, we never did it. And so we see folks, you know, investing in that a bit more to try and hedge in terms of this risk going forward. I think this is, from an insurance perspective, just a very interesting, complicated issue that, as we were talking about earlier, just has not been an issue in decades. And so I think, you know, for folks in the industry, it is really interesting. I, I don't think we're going to have an easy solution anytime soon. But, you know, uh, I don't want to make light of the struggles that are going on now by saying it's interesting. I, I think it's been a real challenge for a lot of people, but it, it's, a, it's an issue, you know, and I think we've got to find a way to resolve it. 
But curiously, I mean, contrary to belief, it's not like any gigantic insurer is smacking its lips saying, wow, this is opportunity for the next big product for us to sell. No, absolutely. I, I, absolutely not. I mean, I think similar to the Great Recession, you know, I mean, there was legitimate frustrations with banks. Um, in this case, if I'm a business owner, I, I can certainly understand the, the frustration with the insurance companies. I think, unfortunately, in this case, carriers are, are not going to be making a ton of money off of this. I think I don't see carriers in mass saying, hey, great opportunity. Let's dive right in. I, I think it's just you know, carriers are very black and white and they things fit in the underwriting model or they don't. And so I don't see how they could quantify this in a way where they say, oh, my goodness, you know, this is absolutely going to be a moneymaker for us in the future. Uh, you know, that day may come. I think there's a little bit of PTSD uh, with the current scenario that uh, I, I doubt that we'll see a lot of people jumping in. You were listening to John Pendleton, Risk Advisor with Scott Insurance. It serves companies across the U.S. and internationally with property and casualty insurance. Uh, I look forward to having you on the show again. I can't thank you enough. Yeah, thanks for having me. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. A shout out to our radio partners across the map. WVTF's Radio IQ across the great state of Virginia, including Charlottesville, Roanoke, and Richmond. WERA 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and parts of Washington, D.C. WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina. And out west, KPPQ in Ventura, California. You can follow on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. And please get in touch if you'd like full disclosure on your air. If you are just joining us, we are talking about the future of business coverage, business insurance in the wake of the great pandemic of 2020 to the present, uh, COVID-19. We are joined by Tom Baker, William Malmese, professor of law at uh, Penn Law School in Philly. He has covered this topic extensively. How are you, sir? I am good, considering that Omicron is still with us. It is still with us, and who knows however many uh, Greek letters we have to go through before this kind of fades into hindsight, even if it isn't 2020 hindsight, and we can actually finish litigating these things and actually have policies for people to purchase. You have covered that extensively, but before we go into any of that, uh, dear prof, if you could just uh, wax a little bit of insurance 101 for us. Why isn't this standard? Why can't you just go out and buy something as simple as pandemic insurance. After all, there's earthquake insurance, there's flood insurance, there's health insurance. Uh, J-Lo can uh, insure various parts of her body. Well, I mean, there's really a lot of answers to that question. Mm. There's, you know, but I would say the main reason that you can't go out and buy it today, at least something that's explicitly for this, is that we've never really had to deal with it when we've had the kind of insurance system that we now have. You know, during the Spanish flu, which I know is wrongly named, but, you know, during that flu, you know, there really wasn't a kind of robust property insurance with business interruption coverage market. And, you know, the idea that you could insure against acts of God, for lack of a better word, was, you know, not something that people thought was possible. Whereas, you know, today we insure against hurricanes, we insure against floods, we, we insure against all kinds of things that we used to think we couldn't insure against. So why was this so unthinkable? I mean, as I read your uh, research and I read coverage of why small and medium-sized businesses especially were blindsided in 2020 when their business interruption insurance specifically carved out uh, pandemic, was that out of the lesson of 2002, 2003 and SARS-2? I mean, I thought that was a wake-up call for the world that this kind of stuff could indeed jump over the various ponds and cause a global shutdown of sorts. Why didn't the insurers brace for that? If anything, they more braced for kind of carving this stuff out and, and CYA, if you will. Yeah. I mean, you know, SARS and Ebola and the other things that you, know, you could think of as being precursors to this turned out not to have the global impact that would have forced, you know, attention to it and and you're right. The insurance industry after SARS, many insurers, not not all insurers and not and even most insurers who did this, they didn't do this necessarily consistently, did put provisions in their property insurance policies that said they weren't going to cover uh, losses from viruses and other communicable diseases. But 
you know, I, I think on a going forward basis, one thing that pretty much everybody agrees with, I would say, is that we're not going to be able to do this without some sort of public-private cooperation. And, you know, SARS and Ebola turned out not to be big enough to motivate the government to do something about it. Indeed, you know, fresh off the press is just a, a, a preprint peer review paper that you kind of shared with me is that you have this co-authored paper, uh, What History Can Tell Us About the Future of Insurance and Litigation After COVID-19 with uh, UVA School of Law Professor Kenneth Abraham. And it really kind of gets at some of the, the tricky subjects of it. Yes, it's unprecedented. We were not dealing with an economy that looked anything like this one back during the pandemic of the late teens and early 20s in the in the 20th century. I want to quote from that paper, Professor. We know from the past that insurance markets usually adapt to address new risks, not automatically, not in a seamless straight line manner, not without controversy, litigation, or occasional failure, but they adapt. Flood risks have been insured. Riot risks have been insured. Environmental risks have been insured. Terrorism risks have been insured. Cyber risks are being insured. Similarly, pandemic risks will be insured, perhaps initially with reluctance and limits of various sorts, but eventually with broader and more substantial coverage. Who are the ones at the forefront of lobbying for this? I don't know where a kind of a chamber of commerce would stand. On the one hand, you know, you have landlords out there that weren't able to get paid rents because cash flows fell off a cliff for restaurants or theaters or bars. Uh, is there someone out there, is there a kind of a unanimous constituency saying that we need a public-private partnership on this? The, I don't think there is a unanimous constituency now, but you know, you may find this strange, but I find it pretty to be expected, is the insurance industry and particularly reinsurers are out there saying, and you know, whether they have concrete proposals that they're ready to, you know, serve up to legislatures yet, I'm, you know, I'm less confident of that. But that, you know, Munich Re, for instance, is uh, on record as saying that there needs to be some kind of public-private partnership to deal with this problem. And you know, the reason is is that you know, what do we learn from the pandemic? We learned that the government will bail us out because the government has to bail us out because we need the economy to keep going. But, you know, insurance that you get in advance is pretty much always better than a government bailout after the fact, if you can arrange it. And, you know, that's what we decided we were going to do with terrorism. Uh, that's what we do with flood insurance. And, you know, it means that the government, you know, you can use the S word subsidy, which some people want to confuse with socialism, another S word. But, you know, the government has to be involved because it's a bigger problem than the private market is prepared to handle on its own. But, you know, that partnership is the is the better approach, I think. Let's dispense with euphemism. Whatever CARES and PPP were kind of in the fog of, of 2020 when everybody was feeling this free fall, nobody could make payroll. You had really so many businesses on the brink of insolvency and bankruptcy. And Capitol Hill, the Federal Reserve, everybody kind of had to step in in the absence of uh, comprehensive insurance payouts and bail out all manner of businesses, small, medium, big, whether you were a, you know, a concert venue, you're a restaurant with staff. So how does that is that is that going to be looked at in hindsight as a bailout, as a one-time subsidy? Or are we kind of just dancing around words? I mean, I don't think how it can be thought of as anything other than a bailout. And it and it it was great. It was necessary. I mean, gov you know, my friend David Moss at Harvard Business School written a wonderful book called Government is the Ultimate Risk Manager. You know, there are things that we rely on governments to do. But, you know, Having been burned once, I would hope that people would think about ways of setting it up for the future that will mean that we'll be prepared, that there'll be reserves, that there'll be insurance policies in place that will cover this, that will mean that people who are used to figuring out how much someone's losses were is going to be figuring out those losses and someone who's used to figuring out whether someone actually suffered the Harm that they say they suffered, uh, you know, is there? And it's insurance companies. They, you know, people like to think bad things about them, but what they're really good at is actually paying claims. You know, when you think about all the things we've read about how the CARES Act and PPP gave money to the wrong people and so forth, you know, insurance companies—that's what they do. They're they, you know, they identify who the right people are and they pay them the right amount. And yeah, there might be some skirmishing around it. You know, on the whole, it works reasonably well. 
But demystify this for me, Professor Baker. To to successfully underwrite something like that, it, it's difficult to do in a global pandemic because if everyone is suffering from it, you're not collecting the fat premiums from one kind of idiosyncratic corner of the world where everybody is okay and paying out the people in the pandemic. For example, if you know you had a, a horrific fire situation in the southwest of the United States that doesn't apply to people in Maine and New England, but a national or multinational insurer is otherwise still collecting premiums and can successfully uh, you know, balance the balance sheet, if you will, in terms of assets yeah, well, and so, liabilities. Yeah, so insurance can do a couple things. It can help spread losses over time, which you can do even if everybody suffers them all at once. And then, you know, secondly, as we've seen in our so-called K-shaped recovery and, you know, what's happened to the economy over the period is that people didn't suffer equally. So they're even, even in, in the moment, there were, you know, some winners and then there were losers who were bigger losers and smaller losers. And so, you know, there was the sort of heterogeneity is the fancy word, but that not everybody being in the same situation, that is one of the things that characterizes circumstances when insurance can work. And and it can work when people are all in the same position at time X, but they're not in the same position, you know, in times A through Z, you know, leaving X out. And, you know, so so insurance can work. It's just that, you know, for something this big, I think we need the government sitting behind the scenes as a reinsurer, as providing, as the ultimate, you know, as to follow David Moss's words, as the ultimate risk manager. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Tom Baker. He is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania. He is an insurance industry expert, a leading scholar of insurance law and policy. Uh, and your research uh, explores insurance law institutions and markets using methods from history, economics, psychology, and sociology. I will go back to that period where everybody, every every small business owner in the country was like, what the heck, go back, litigate, read the fine print, the boilerplate. Uh, Lloyds of London in 2020 estimated that the insurance industry still had to pay out something north of $110 billion in pandemic-related claims, more than the combined amounts doled out after the terrorist attacks in September 2001 and Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Besides businesses that bought special coverage, the claims include payouts to major sporting and entertainment events that bought cancellation policies coverage, such as Wimbledon Tennis that you know famously collected about $140 million. Insurers are also paying workers' compensation claims for employees who got sick on the job. There is, if you will, you know, to use some more boilerplate, there is leakage in this. After all, the health insurers, they can't if somebody shows up at an emergency room saying that they can't breathe, uh, they have flu-like symptoms and they're you know, God forbid, intubated and ventilator in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars of ICU and emergency room care and rehab care and everything. It's not like a health insurance provider can say we're carving out COVID-related cases. You can't expect for us to pay for this because it's a, I don't know, force majeure or, or act of God. We, we don't cover COVID. They have to cover this. They do. But, you know, that brings up something that people haven't paid as much attention to as they might is that health insurers, auto insurers, homeowners insurers, life insurers, they did great during the pandemic. Wow. So I did see that we were getting contacted by our auto insurers for using the car far less and kind of maybe they preemptively gave us a a peace dividend, if you will. If you're driving less, well, we'll, we'll cut your premium. Yeah. And, you know, I've been tracking all the litigation, all the insurance litigation arising out of COVID. And one of the interesting categories is premium relief class actions brought against homeowners insurers and auto insurers. I I don't think those are going to go anywhere. But what they illustrate is that those insurers, because people were out and about less, had really profitable years. But yet, the insurance industry as a whole said if we had to pay out business interruption claims, it would just completely wipe out a bunch of insurers. Uh, it, would, it would eat up our reserves, the extent of, of losses that was ultimately absorbed by what? PPP and CARES and transitively the Federal Reserve by buying corporate credit and loosening money and everything. The price tag on it is just dwarfs the insurance capability of the entire industry. Yeah. I mean, I think that isn't element of public relations designed mm. to influence the judges who are deciding the litigation about whether the policies sold previously covered it. But I don't think anyone disagrees that kind of in the long run, this is an event like the COVID pandemic is something that the private insurance market is going to need some government help on. 
Tell me other areas that are so idiosyncratic or risky. I mean, I've I've heard about flood insurance. Uh, fire insurance might get looked at in different ways right now with with you know massive. Yeah, earthquake you know, insurance. Earthquake insurance is one. Uh, you know, in you know Florida and coastal states, windstorm insurance. I mean, you know, the the whole hurricane insurance situation is complicated by the fact that we separate floods from the harm caused by the wind in hurricanes so that uh, that gets treated separately. But, uh, you know, it's basically, I mean, the overall issue is the problem of bad things that happen to lots of people all at once that are insured by the same organization or sets of organizations. I mean, you know, this is, you know, the, the fancy word is correlation, you know, correlated losses or what the industry calls catastrophic losses, which for them simply means losses where there's lots of correlation. Uh, those are hard for the insurance industry to deal with because they require insurers to distribute losses over time rather than sort of, you might say, horizontally among policyholders. And it's it's hard for a private enterprise to build and then hold the kinds of reserves that are required to spread loss over time in that way. And so for those kinds of losses, you see in many places, including the US, the government involved, you know, usually behind the scenes. Are these all loss leading programs for the taxpayer? It's not like the, the government is a successful underwriter. It's not like the, the government can successfully, you know, capture premiums and go and invest them in the markets and and uh, act as a fiduciary or in an actuarial sense that it just has no choice but to do this. Yeah, but I mean, see, what it is, is is the government not only has no choice, but it has capacities that private insurers don't have. You know, I mean, the government can spend money and then tax afterwards. The, 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 the government doesn't need to know what something's going to cost in advance in order to provide insurance against it, whereas at least in our current model of insurance where we expect to pay fixed premiums today and return for certain coverage tomorrow, you know, insurers have a hard time doing that when they don't know what the future is going to be like. Whereas the government can make a promise about the future that it, you know, can enforce because it can print money or borrow the money or tax to get the money. You know, I think there's another ver- version of kind of mission creep in this is that you've, we haven't asked questions that if you walk into a CVS or a Walgreens, your vaccination and booster are covered. No questions asked. I wasn't even asked for an insurance card. Or you see uh, the Biden administration sending out these COVID tests, no questions asked for free, or the new N95 mask initiative. That is a some version of government, or I don't know, some other line item that's paying for these things. Even if you have private health insurance, the government has stepped in, the federal government, and is saying that we have uh, some sort of capacity to cover these unforeseen COVID pandemic type expenses, which have to be extraordinary. Yeah, actually, I love your metaphor of that as a kind of loss leader. I like it because it's, it, you know, this is a circumstance where the government is demonstrating, hey, we can do something and we can do it now. And, you know, we'll work out on the back end whether health insurers ought to be kicking in for this or not. I, and, and I guess you can, you know, I hadn't ever thought of it as a, it is a kind of a loss leader. It demonstrates in very concrete ways what the government is good at, namely helping you when super unpredictable things happen. Now, there are certain things that have not been resolved. I mean, after the housing crisis, for example, there was a lot of questioning of government backstopping of mortgage debt through, you know, the government-sponsored entities, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I don't want to get into the weeds with you, but what I'm where I'm trying to get out of these kind of gray areas where, you know, they say private profit socialized risk. It is ultimately Uncle Sam that will backstop you, even if that is not explicitly codified somewhere. You kind of get a wink wink or precedent will show you in this pandemic or in the real estate meltdown or the bailout of Wall Street that government is indeed the de facto insurer. No, 100% and I, you know, I agree I, and I have been, you know, I can be accused of using the privatizing profit socializing risk as a kind of uh, swear word for lack of a better word. But, you know, when you think about it, it's maybe not maybe there's a positive spin you can place on that that we've that we're asking, we're providing the opportunity for private enterprise to step up to do the things that it can do, which is you know, set up systems for assessing risk, set up systems for paying claims, set up systems for collecting premiums, but having the government behind the scene when it turns out that it's just 
bigger than anyone could have anticipated or bigger than it would be reasonable for the private market to set aside reserves to cover. And that, you know, but private enterprise isn't going to do that unless you let them make a profit. And, it, you know, at the end of the day, this all insurance involves socializing risk. It just involves socializing it in different ways. When private insurance works the way that we want it to work, it's the risks are just socialized among the premium paying members of the pool. But, you know, sometimes that pool isn't big enough. And then we, you know, socialize it a little bit broader. Uh, and when you're talking about something as big as a pandemic, at the end of the day, you know, most I would say all taxpayers are benefiting by the fact that the economy didn't go totally down the toilet. And so no problem that my taxes, your taxes, you know, help pay for that. Professor, what happened in other countries, both developing and, and uh, kind of, uh, you know, developed Western Europe and the like that had the similar chain of chain reaction events happen? There were lockdowns in Milan. Uh, you saw them in Buenos Aires. You saw them in Ecuador, that landlords suddenly could not get cash flow from rent, could not make mortgage payments. Uh, restaurants couldn't make payroll. What other regimes were in place, especially in kind of more state-sponsored places where you have government-run financial services? Well, I mean, the private insurance sector, I will say this, didn't step up voluntarily in any of those places other than when there were contracts that were sort of bulletproof, not arguable, must pay cancellation coverage, that pretty much everywhere there's been litigation about whether the, let's call it ordinary property insurance policies with business interruption coverage have to pay. And those, you know, have resolved differently in different countries. As to the, you know, what the individual governments give, I hear I'm going to plead ignorance. Is it, you know, I don't know what England, France, Germany, uh, Sweden, Norway did that would mimic or be different from the CARES Act or the PPP program. From a self-preservation perspective, um, you know, I, I want to throw an example of you. I was amazed at kind of how a company like uh, Walt Disney, the, the multinational entertainment conglomerate, was hit from so many directions by this pandemic. Theme park shutdowns. You have ESPN, which is a big contributor to profits there, where live sports were shut down for the longest time and, and uh, advertising revenue collapsed across its networks. How do these gigantic corporations work this out with, I don't know, in the options market or in terms of risk pricing. It's one thing for a small, medium-sized business to be able to read between the lines, oh, I'm covered for mold or flood, but not this. It's another thing for a gigantic corporation existentially when so many business lines are shut down to not have, I don't know, some sort of options play or or real insurance uh, uh, coverage that can help for what you know one of these once-in-hundred-year events. Yeah, I mean, there isn't for them, you know, some kind of insurance product. There, you know, they went through the same, and they, in fact, are going through the same kind of litigation around, you know, what's covered under their existing policies and did they cover event cancellation policies? And it turns out that, you know, the entertainment industry had um, different kinds of, you know, cast coverage and things that applied to TV shows and so forth, and those. Those policies turn out to be a little more favorable for the company that bought them than the sort of standard business interruption coverage and our property insurance policy. But you know those those big companies, they you know their their shares took hits. They had to go borrow money if they could. They you know were eligible for some of the bailouts. I mean they you know there wasn't some special access to the world capital markets that you know other than things that come from the benefit of just being a very large, sophisticated organization generally. I mean, you know, the good news is that the capital markets, I mean, you you know this better than I do, you know, for the capital markets, they care about, you know, what's the future? And if this is seen as a one-time event, you know, there's not as big of a penalty as there might otherwise be. You know, things we've seen, some companies are now doing great because people are staying home more. They're, you know, they're consuming their entertainment in different ways. A couple of interesting things that I learned from your working paper here. You point out that auto and health insurers have actually done well in the pandemic because people drove and went to the doctor less. Life insurers may have paid more claims, but the preponderance of deaths among the very old means that the pandemic did not as significantly vary from actuarial projections that could otherwise have been the case. Moreover, the demand for life insurance increased during the pandemic, so the overall financial result may well have been positive. Workers' comp insurance is the most impacted of the casualty lines of insurance, but the most direct cause is a newly adopted legal presumption that employees contracted COVID at work, not the pandemic itself. 
because that was a regulatory change, insurers are likely to be permitted to recover those costs through premium increases. Uh, it blows the mind that this kind of stuff keeps me up at night, but it apparently isn't keeping <laughs> it isn't keeping the Chamber of Commerce and the insurance industry up at night because look, we're still in the thick of this. This might be the closing innings of of COVID, but it's a reminder that things do fall apart in a fully correlated way, and and the entire world economy can shut off in a matter of minutes. To the point that do you remember, oil tankers were idled; you couldn't give the stuff away, and uh, it's still possible. In spite of all that, to say, oh, this is just a, a once in a thousand year event. It's not worth truly kind of re-regulating or restructuring ourselves over. That's true. Let's hope it's a once in a thousand year event. But you know, think back to the terrible events of nine eleven. Thankfully, that has turned out to be a you know a one time so far event. But we built a whole government reinsurance program behind that to make sure that the next time it happened, we'd be ready. And we could do, in my opinion, we should do the same for pandemics. Professor Tom Baker, insurance expert at the University of Pennsylvania School of Law. One of the joys of my job is being able to reach out to professors and, you know, subsidize my continuing education this way. I get to interview <laughs> you and I get kind of a, a precept session and my listeners can join in on it. I cannot thank you enough for kind of holding our hands. Well, it is my pleasure, and I enjoy listening to you on my morning drive, so it's quite a privilege. Thank you. Come back anytime. Full disclosure, special thanks to our producer, Claire Morgan at Notterly. This show podcast to NPR One, NPR.org, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, recommend us to your mother, uh, follow anywhere you like on any podcatcher. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, at Full D Radio. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you so much for listening and back with you next week. <laughs>